fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. Now, this is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology, and we make it a reality. We do that. We are the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With me, physics phenom, Dr. Michael Dennett. Great to be here, Dan. I'm so excited. You've hit a new threshold, Dan. You've recommended many great shows, but you've actually pushed me into the realm of not wanting any spoilers. As we know, I usually don't care, but I've insisted this time on no spoilers for me. So for those of you watching, we'll only spoil season one through season two, episode one. <laughs> That's, that is very true. I love that. You know, I have to say, Denon, we've done a lot of things together. We've, you know, we've accomplished lots of things as a group. And this is probably my greatest accomplishment is keeping you spoiler free. Now, there is one man who doesn't care if anything is spoiled, and that is our enigmatic engineer, Ben Seepser. Ben, have I taken you and put you into the world of non-spoiler? Have I have I converted you, Ben? That's the question everyone wants to know. You know, there's some weird quantum stuff going on here because I'm a little worried about spoilers too, Dan. I, you know, I'm in this barn. There's this crazy computer here. There's some smoke coming out of it. Uh, I'm getting nervous, and I also am worried about spoilers, Dan. <laughs> well, I am going to. We're going to do our best, Ben, because you know I have your best interests at heart. So I'm going to keep everything close to the vest here. And what is this show that no one wants to be spoiled? Well, this is Travelers on Netflix. When did this come out? In 2021? Is it possibly 2022? No, it came out in 2019. But that's okay. It's an older show. But I got to tell you, this is a show that you are going to watch possibly in the span of two weeks. This was when when 24 came out way back in 2000. I watched that show, binged it. This is That was the first show that I ever binged. This one is a close second. I loved watching every episode on this. And, and I will tell you guys, this is going to tell you how much I love it. This show... I love this series, despite the fact that they, they have storylines that dead end, that get dropped, that exist for one episode, or storylines that make no sense at all. I, I, could, I forgive all of that, and you guys know how unforgiving I am when it comes to television. Oh, I do, Dan. And, you know, I, I don't know. That may just be a spoiler. I'm now trying to figure out what storylines they drop and don't end. Um, but I do, I, I just, I love the feel of the show. I, I love both. I don't know. I love the humanity of it, right? I mean, it, it's a science fiction show where I personally really am almost more interested in the characters and their individual stories. And they ask some great questions about what does it really mean to be a person? There's a great quote in it about, I, I really hope we're more than the sum of our memories. And I kind of realized I hope that too, but you know, maybe we're not. And so <laughs> it, it, it's just, it really drew me in. Yeah, absolutely. That you really empathize with these characters who are put in a very weird situation. They're forced to abandon their old lives and take over new ones. And just, and you have all these weird things of what happens when you get rebooted. You can be reset back to an old state. Like, that's a scary thing when you're, you can just lose all your memories and everybody else will kind of think you're the same, but you, you'll be different, but you won't even remember it. No, that's exactly right. And, you know, what are we talking about here? For those who are unfamiliar, one of the key components of this show, Travelers, is an ability for the future 
the future people, the future civilization, to send consciousness, not people, consciousnesses, conscious nigh, how do you say that, consciousnesses, <laughs> back in time into another brain, into another person, and allow them to live their life in the past. And I feel like this, you know, this, like some of the other things that we do, it's a little complicated. It requires a little bit of groundwork. Because uh, so when, when I think of a brain, when I think of sending a consciousness back, brains to me seem like the biological equivalent of a hard drive. When we're experiencing the world, when we're learning things, when we're looking around, when we're talking, we store all those memories in our brain. They're written to neurons in a way. You know, a lot of our computing is based on the structure of the brain. They seem very similar. Um, now, I don't know about interchangeable, but they're, they're very similar. Biological computer is what I'm saying here. Now, Ben, as our brain expert and possibly the one with the largest brain in the brain trust, and that's saying a lot, Ben, what do you think about this? How does my uh, paradigm hold up? Yeah, well, that's definitely the very classical concept of a brain. Our memories are, we, we're pretty confident our memories come from how our synapses get wired to get, or how our neurons get wired together through our synapses. Maybe the myelin and maybe the, the glial cells are involved somehow too. But Travelers brings up this very interesting concept of uh, the quantumness of our brain because the consciousnesses are sent back through quantum entanglement, which implies something more than this classical approach to brain science. Right, Denon? Oh, definitely. And I think a really good analogy here for people who aren't as familiar or comfortable with quantum and what that would mean is thinking about regular waves on the surface of water, say a lake. Um, basically what you do, you know, you make a wave, you throw a rock in the lake and the wave exists at one point and then it travels through the lake as a wave and you're like, well, that's the same wave right next to the rock as when it's getting near the shore. But it's completely different water molecules. The key here is the wave packet itself, the collection, the structure. And that's really what we're saying here with consciousness, that it's the fundamental thing and the brain neurons are like the water molecules. It doesn't matter which brain neurons you use as long as you're using brain neurons. I mean, we know the wave, it hits the shore, there's no water and suddenly there's no wave. Um, you, you miss a brain and suddenly there's no consciousness. So they are very careful in the show to be accurate and only send you to brains. Um, but that fundamental image of a wave packet and the quantumness, the quantum wave packet being the core, is what's really key here and what the show brings. Well, I think that that's right. And, you know, I don't want anyone to miss my brain. And, you know, what I like is in this show, they do have very specific coordinates. I mean, I think they call it tell time, elevation, latitude, longitude, um, you know, th where it is, where the brain's located. So we don't miss it. I love this idea of visualizing the consciousness as a wave and that the individual particles of the water don't matter. It's that energy, the wave. That's what matters. But we're, we're moving this around, Den. And as I mentioned, you got to find the exact place. We got you, you mentioned we got to hit this brain right on the button. But what about if this was, you know, an ocean halfway across the world? How could we transfer the wave from one ocean to, or, or maybe a Great Lake? That's a better example. Let's move it from the Atlantic Ocean to a Great Lake in Michigan. How are we doing that? Well, Dan, you hit on exactly the key quantum entanglement element of this. Quantum entanglement is a fundamental property of wave functions and quantum particles. We've talked about it a lot of this show. The classic example is two spins that are entangled. You move them very far apart. Doesn't matter how far apart. You measure one spin, say, as being up, and that forces the other spin to instantaneously be down, right? And this is what we're doing here. Normal waves, if I make a wave in the Atlantic Ocean and it disappears, 
it just disappears. It does not appear in a great lake. We know that. But, right. <laughs> but quantum mechanically, when you entangle two parts of the wave function, you can get behavior like that where the wave function is either all in the Atlantic Ocean or the Great Lakes, but not both. And if you make it disappear in one, it has to appear in the other. The trick here is to get that entanglement after the fact far apart. So we know how to do entangle things that are initially at the same point, move them apart and get this effect. They've added this added element, but in principle, you could imagine this being possible if you can figure out how to create that entanglement. It is a purely quantum effect. So, Den, you've explained really well this, you know, how we uh, quantumly entangle something from Lake Michigan to the Atlantic Ocean. But what about Lake Michigan to the Atlantic Oceans 100 years ago or 150 years ago? That's what they're doing in the show. Is time not a factor in this type of thing? Oh, it definitely is a factor, Ben. And what's interesting here is this is where we would need to bring in a little general relativity, something else we've talked a lot. Our longtime viewers are experts in both of these. I understand that. But I'll explain it for the new viewers, right? Space and time are both just dimensions. Now, the difference is we only experience moving forward in time, but we can go left and right in space. But if you imagine our lake or our ocean, um, the way we like to in physics, we condense all of space into one direction. So left and right on the lake is space, and, and forward and back on the lake is time. Though we normally only move forward in time, the forward and back both exist, and the fundamental equations actually don't distinguish between moving forward and backward. And you can make your wave function be entangled either in space or the time dimension. And so you make it disappear at one point in time and have to appear at the, another point in time, which is the past. So quantum entanglement does work in both directions. The math does work out. I see. So you're saying there's nothing in the rule book that says you can't entangle over time, too. Exactly. It, it is exactly the, the issue of nothing in the rule book prevents this from happening. <laughs> and, and clever viewers will know that that is a clear reference to Air Bud. And if he doesn't know math, I mean, you got to jump and dunk as a dog. That requires a lot of math. Ben knows that. Uh, I think that that is that's a very perfect way to describe how this works. So we have this quantum entanglement. We've got quantum consciousness. I'm going to call it quantum consciousness. We've got this. We've moved it around. We figured out how that works. But I feel like there's still a couple of, I don't want to say issues, some struggles, some challenges that even though your consciousness has successfully entered into a new body, you don't know anything about that body, right? You know, you look at me, I'm a pretty athletic guy. What if I end up in some clunky body? Uh, you know, am I able to have the same muscle memory? Can I still drain threes from half court if I'm getting thrown into another body? That's a question that I want to know. It's definitely something I would consider before being sent back in time on these traveler missions. And we see them do a lot of karate, a lot of martial arts going on here, which requires very specific, very precise movements and a knowledge of your body. Ben, what do you think about this? Do you think you'd be able to go back in time and pull off the, the kung fu moves that I've watched you do in private? That's a great point, Dan. Our bodies and our brains are very well connected and our bodies know how to operate our specific muscles. So I think this comes down to training. You know, they talk about having simulators to practice driving. I'm guessing in the future, they also have some tech to ha practice their kung fu moves or their judo moves or their boxing moves and all these things that and all the other fighting that you see these guys do. I, I'm guessing they have to kind of plug in to some sort of brain uh, practice dojo like say like say the Matrix 
to learn how to use the body they're going to be going into. I, I think that's really uh, uh, the key part of it here, Ben. And I think it goes again to this idea that the water molecules don't matter, that they're the specific water molecules. And Dan, that's what we kind of have to take seriously. If you, if you have the traditional model of the brain and consciousness that you spoke about earlier, then I, I have a lot of problem with them doing the karate moves. But if their consciousness is the fundamental thing and the brain and body is just a tool that the consciousness drives, then you have an interesting um, possibility here that they could use almost any body to do what they want. I mean, not only are they doing kung fu, um, you have people going back into the bodies of sharpshooters and still being the best sharpshooter no matter how old they are. And that person's vision was probably not very good at that point. Um, you know, maybe it was. I don't know. Hard to tell. Um, so there is that interesting feature. But there are also some limits we see where Marcy needs to get rebooted. You know, the, the brain was fundamentally broken in certain ways. And so the initial consciousness was mapped to the wrong neurons. It was almost like it was half on shore, half in the ocean and was struggling and they had to remap it. So there, there is some intricacies here. Yeah, I mean, I think I guess that's right. Although I would imagine if you moved Usain Bolt's consciousness from his body into my body, I'm not breaking any world records. But I do understand what you're saying there. Um, the other thing here, and this may be, you know, this may be a little far fetched, but the, you know, there there is the school of thought that simply by envisioning yourself doing an athletic maneuver, uh, that you actually your body is going through the the motions and creating muscle memory. So there is a very direct link between your brain and visualization and your muscles, your body functionally being able to do that thing, which is a very interesting connection. And I think that comes into play during what I would argue is one of the most important parts of a traveler's job, and that is not only to survive the consciousness transfer, but every person they transfer into is moments away from death. That's how they get away with this. So they have about 10 to five seconds to get out of the dire, life-threatening situation that they're in. I imagine that has to be not only anxiety-provoking, but also, you got to use a lot of practice with that. Ben, I've seen you get out of a lot of death-defying situations in my time with you. Do you think that this would be something you would be able to not only do, but to teach other people to do? Absolutely. I, I think this really just comes down to, again, that practice. We talked about how they're, they're training to become you know, martial arts masters in their new body, but they're clearly also going through all sorts of practice for uh, preparing for that initial breakthrough moment. You know, we hear uh, Traveler, I think it is 4022, who has to defuse a bomb when he arrives, and he fails, but he talks about having practiced that defusal operation hundreds of times. Uh, and so clearly they, they have very good details about the circumstances of all these people's deaths. And, and just like the Kung Fu Matrix simulator, they clearly also have a bomb defusal simulator or a driving simulator or a Marcy's, you know, fight at the library simulator where they <laughs> practice many, many times how to get out of the situation and survive that initial encounter because yeah they're coming in at a point where everybody's about to die and in many cases they're about to die through from means that are not in control uh, by, by the person who's about to die 
I love that specific example, though. <laughs> I love that specific example of the Marcy fight at the library simulator. I would love to load that program and see how that works. <laughs> oh, I I'm with you, Dan. And I also do think, though, th this is why I'd like to be the person picked for the easier ones. Because McLaren, right, all that has to happen is the team prevents him from uh, falling into the elevator. He actually doesn't have to do anything to save himself. So I, I, that, that is the body I want right. to go back to, yeah. right? Um, yeah. That simulator is easy. Don't step backwards. Yeah, or, or the don't shoot yourself one. Yeah, th those are very easy. Yeah, and not all of them are that easy. You know, no. as the show most gets of them up, get crazier and crazier. Yeah, most of them are, are very, very tricky. And that bomb one's a perfect example. But what I love about that bomb example is it shows you how difficult it can be to predict how someone is going to react under those conditions. Where it's simulated conditions before, as you mentioned with the Marcy fight at the library scenario, uh, you may be able to win that simulation and you know achievement unlocked 100%. But when you go back and you're actually in that situation, anything can happen, things can change. And that's what I love. So this is probably the one spoiler about this show we're gonna talk about, which is a really big one. So if you haven't watched the show, pause this episode. Okay, hit play. Here we go. So the key thing, this is the one thing I love about this, is that the director, the guy who is sending everyone back in time, this is actually an advanced AI program who is running algorithms, making all of those predictions that we just talked about. I love this concept that there's an advanced AI running simulations on time and predicting outcomes. Denon, I know that this has got to be something that you loved as well. Well, I really, really loved it. I do have to admit, I had some deep concerns and questions about it in the following sense. Um, as amazing as AI is, right, AI is always trained on data. Um, mm -hmm. And what's interesting about this is we don't have a lot of data as to, you know, what are all the different, like, outcomes or impacts of the way you change things. Which brings us to another core quantum idea that I think the show doesn't explicitly talk about but is going on. If this is really a quantum-based AI, which it implies it is, um, see the picture behind um, Ben there and he'll explain it more. The quantum AI is presumably running a many-world simulation, another quantum effect we've talked about a lot, right? So the quantum AI is presumably training on all the different possibilities in ways that we can only imagine if you were quantum, which we're not, we're classical in many ways. So I think that's an important piece here because if I gave AI historical data um, to predict how things might behave, that's helpful and useful. But for instance, there hasn't ever been an asteroid crash during human's history yet. Um, and even if there is one that the AI is using, you know, that's not a lot of data to go on. That's one event. Normally, AI trains on a ton of data. So I'm very excited about it, but it did raise some some interesting questions for me. Um, I don't know about you, Ben, because, you know, you are sitting there with the quantum AI right now. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about the prediction. I will say there have been some there have been some asteroid incidents in our lifetime. You know, you can look up Chelyabinsk in Russia when a uh, a meteor exploded very low to the earth and caused a lot of damage uh but yeah we haven't had like a dinosaur level asteroid in our lifetime uh, <laughs> like, thankfully i think the tungusta the tungusta um isn't wasn't that an explosion yeah, tungusta event is well? is the biggest one uh which happened yeah. in Sib also in russia um way back and there's probably been some over the ocean that we don't know about uh which is scary because mm -hmm. you know lots of things can happen 
outside of away from humans that we don't know about when it comes to asteroids. Back to the quantum thing, it, what's really interesting about it is this idea that a computer can predict the future and predict the changes. Like, you know, just, just the fact that the travelers are going back would so scramble this thing. You, you know, you're sending back people who have knowledge of the future and the events on the way and, and how that doesn't, you know, that, that then sets up this feedback loop of upset uh, to this simulation. That's a really hard calculation to figure out because it's this continuous uh, kind of feedback loop of people knowing what's happening or what's going to happen. How is that going to affect the timeline above and beyond the changes you want to make? Uh I don't know how this AI is doing it because that seems like a really tough challenge. Like it's hard enough to do that with like an engine controller. And, and this, that's why this fundamentally can't be a traditional classical AI, right? There is a quantum element here to the calculation because it's really quantum mechanics and quantum computing that is a, allowing us to go beyond simple binary, to take advantage of actual interference effects, to do things in interesting ways. And I think this is just the next level that we haven't really envisioned yet. So I think there's a lot of cool like potential there. And I love that imagination. I also love the fact, um, see our earlier episodes, you know, the Mitchells versus the machines, for instance, about AI taking over. Um, this is an interesting one. Um, it's also kind of like, uh, I believe, the yogurt situation we discussed, you know, where humans basically just said, wait, the AI is way better than us. We're going to do everything the director says because life is so crappy. That's an interesting inverse apocalypse. Apocalypse happens and then we let the AI run our lives as opposed to the other way around. Well, I think it's important to note that everyone's coming back right before they're going to die. And so the, this computer is saving people from death. Their simple existence, as we all know from the classic movie, It's a Wonderful Life, that impact changes so many lives. The ripple effect is so tremendous. And it's not just one or two people that are getting sent back. So it, uh, it is a, a tremendous amount of change that the computer has to adjust for every single time. But I think in some ways... This is the best solution. Uh, this, I'm going off a field here. I'm changing my tune here a little bit, guys, from my typical robocalypse, uh, you know, my robocalypse adverse stance. So when I think about this, human beings, when they start making decisions, I mean, look at our current life situation. No matter when you're watching this, I'm sure that humans are screwing up something somewhere when they get together. But a computer doesn't have that problem. All they're doing is they're taking massive amounts of data, they're analyzing it, and telling you what are the potential outcomes in percentages. In some ways, I think this may actually be a very efficient way to guide human civilization. Dare I say it, I'm going out on a limb here. I'm changing my tune. Ben, have I converted you? I mean, you are a robot. I got to imagine you got to love me coming over to your side. Yeah, a little bit. Another interesting thing, thing that for me is the candidates they're choosing. Like, it's really complicated to me that they're, you know, picking people that are, say, married or have children or are children. Like Trevor, for example, you know, a family losing their child—that's a big event. And to un <laughs> and to right. undo that, yeah. uh, you know, I it just it just is dumbfounding to me that the computer is picking candidates like that. Yeah, you're right. Well, you know, I think what's really going on here is kind of, uh, I'm going to make a reference to Isaac Asimov and the foundation, you know, at the risk of people not knowing this classic science fiction, um, brilliant piece of work where everything is statistical. 
Um, and now for Isaac Asimov's foundation, you know, Harry Seldon is able to calculate the future of humanity based on a statistical analysis because it's a galactic empire and it's large enough. Well, who knows? Maybe we've reached a, a sort of threshold point with billions of people, right, that the, the quantum computing is doing two things, right? It's, it's using true quantum computing and understanding the many worlds approach and the inter interferences. And as you said, Dan, giving percentages. At the same time, Ben, it's maybe able to deal with, you know, fluctuations over the individual level. You know, any individual probably does not matter that much for the global outcome. Um, and what we learn, though, is that changing the future gets very hard. You know, um, there are things they do that they expect to radically solve every problem, and the future is still problematic. So I, I, I'm leaning with you, Dan. You know, when I saw this, I was like, yeah, you know, going with the computer is probably more reliable than going with people making guesses. But even this is turning out, I think, to be much harder than anyone expected. No, I think that that's right. But one of the interesting things here is that I think you mentioned it's difficult to predict people's behavior and things like that. I don't know that it is. You know, I think if, you know, given the amount of information people give up on a daily basis through social media uh, voluntarily, even those mundane patterns, once collected on a massive scale, can give you quite a very accurate picture of what a person does on a daily basis and what stimuli you can exert onto them that will cause them to react in a certain way. And I believe you can predict that within, you know, a very, a very small percentage, uh, you know, with a standard deviation, with a small percentage of you, of that person deviating from the predicted course. Uh, you know, I, really quickly, because I've got a, I've got something that's going to blow you guys away. But really quickly, what do you think about that? Ben is our is our calculations guy. Uh, are you with me on this? Dan, I think that's exactly right. I think it's, it, you know, the, the quantum calculations are doable. And I, I like you bringing this up, Dan, and how, you know, it, it's, it's the big picture that matters. And I think part of this director AI is that it has kind of boiled down the, uh, the, the cloud of probabilities and more importantly, what is affecting that cloud of probabilities down to the essential elements. You know, maybe it doesn't matter if Trevor died or not, but it probably matters that he, he, he became a traveler and then, you know, uh, ref you know, moved the asteroid that was going to hit the earth. Like that's the big event, not whether this one kid dies as, as tragic as that one kid dying would be. Yeah, and I'm with you. And so, Dad, I want to be clear. I think, yeah, you could predict the individual behavior pretty accurately. I'm just saying it's not relevant to the big game, right? That any individual who dies within a right time frame can be replaced, and their life being changed is not moving the big needle as much as the things the traveler now does taking over their life, that those are bigger changes. And so, yeah, there's all these changes going on. you got to track all of them. Yeah, you could perhaps with enough data to predict everybody accurately. But the cool thing I think is you don't have to work on that particular scale and lots of little things can change and you could still end up with a better overall human society, which is their goal. I think they don't care which society they get exactly, just as long as it's a better one. 
No, I think that that's right. But I think we're, you guys are being a little myopic in that, of course, you know, the one individual's actions don't matter. Just like one individual bird's flight pattern doesn't matter. But what if you could take all of those individual people and now predict an entire society's pattern, what they're going to do as a, as a society, just like it's much more impressive if you can predict the flight patterns of birds and then watch the swarm. I don't think that's the proper term. A flock, that's the word. Uh, the, the entire flock of birds change shape, uh, you know, that, that seemingly random pattern in the sky. If you could predict that, that'd be pretty impressive. Could we do it on a human scale? That's what I'm suggesting. Check this out, guys. The United States government, of all people, is experimenting with something called the GIDE, which stands for Global Information Dominance Experiments. What are they doing? They're taking global sensors, all the satellite imagery, all the stuff across the world, powering it with AI, using cloud computing to achieve information dominance and decision-making superiority. They collect massive amounts of commercially available data and information. They feed it into this AI. What is this AI doing with all of this information with, that's immediately re readily available with cloud computing systems? They are able to reliably predict, not seconds in advance, not minutes in advance, but days in advance. What this shows us is with massive amounts of data and that is properly analyzed, you can, with AI, predict the future. This is only three, four days in the future, but once this gets better, I see this as being a real force to predicting the future I think we're on the way to Skynet if this thing were ever to become self-aware. However, I have to say, despite my typical anti-robot, scared of AI stance, this still is very impressive. Ben, I know this has to be doing something to you inside. It's got to be blowing a circuit somewhere. Yeah, I mean, that is very interesting to me. I, I wasn't aware that the uh, uh, there were governments making predictions like this. Uh, it's, it's interesting, but it, it's also kind of... Uh, you know, it's also kind of predictable, I suppose, <laughs> to pun it up a <laughs> you little predict bit. It with your, you predict it with your algorithm. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, when you think about it, you know, a lot of complicated systems can be broken down into much simpler models. You know, we look at the climate models. The climate is a very, very complicated thing, but you can model it at a much kind of coarser level and still make very good predictions about what is going to happen with the climate and and events such like that. And to some degree, once you abstract people to uh, more abstract actors and a group of actors, it, it kind of makes sense that you can then kind of treat them as a group and, and predict what they'll do, kind of like those, uh, you know, army simulations we see for uh, movies where you see a whole army uh working, uh, you know, you, you can see this crazy simulation of thousands of people kind of working together by each giving a very simple piece of agency. You know, Dan, I'm going to blow your mind here. Um, you uh -oh. know, as we all know, a foam is my, you know, first love and area of expertise. <laughs> and I am not going there because my other area of research <laughs> is yeah. directly I was wondering related. how you fit foam into predicting the future. But I, you, if anyone can do it, you can do it. Yeah, no, I could. But the reality is I worked on my graduate thesis in the early part of my career in exactly the field that the people who predict what flocks of birds do work in from simple models. <laughs> and so oh, wow. 20 years ago, I was predicting flocks of birds effectively. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
So not whole That's civilizations, great. not quite the level you described to the government, um, but to just, you know, put, put a sort of emphasis on what Ben said. What's really cool is larger systems in physics are always easier to predict. And, and But the challenge of humanity has been we've been you know, as a system just big enough to be too complicated to predict um, and, and, and just small enough. Um, to be too complicated to predict. We've been in the sweet spot where prediction is hard. And I think you're right, though. The number of people is growing. More importantly, the amount of data is massively growing. And that's what AI thrives on. And you're right. The more data we get, yeah, you know, the better this prediction is going to get. And it gets both scary and not scary, depending on how you look at it. Well, I'm going to tell you how this gets very scary because I'm going to end this because you're exactly right, Denon. Again, you read my mind, which makes me wonder if you're starting to become an AI-powered robot, but I digress. Uh, you're right. These, these AI programs feed on massive amounts of data. So all this stuff you can check. I'm going to put all these articles up on the website. But this one to me seemed the most sinister, and that is that China alleg allegedly has a social media-based dossier on every American adult. Um, you know, f former President Trump's director of national counterintelligence and security. Those are the top guys. We know counterintelligence and security are. They said that 80 percent of American adults have had their data stolen. 20 percent of American adults have had all of their data stolen. And keep in mind, the most popular the popular social media platform is TikTok which is owned by a Chinese company. Now, that's why I don't use it, because everyone knows I'm a paranoid lunatic, um, but I I'm definitely not on it. Uh, that kind of scares me. This is exactly the type of massive amounts of data that this AI thrives on. And despite the fact that people have called me predictable, I would rather people predict my behavior than uh, computers accurately depicting my behavior, because that would be terrifying to me. But this seems like a great place to end it. If there's any errors, additions, and missions, things we've missed that we need some AI-powered robot to figure out and tell us and, and, and let us know about it. This is the place for it. Ben, as our AI-powered robot, is there anything that I missed, Denon missed, or that you missed that you want to talk about, about travelers? Well, I had a fun little calculation that kind of shows how good at targeting the uh, the brain transfer process is by the, uh, the travelers. You know, Earth is moving really fast, right? We have the or you have the orbital velocity, you have the Earth is spinning, it's going around the sun, and the sun is also going around the galaxy. And actually, the galaxy is also flying through space, too, uh, away from the center of the galaxy. And in order to accurately target ahead, you have to know uh, a person's position down to the hundred, you have to like know their time of death down to the hundreds of nanoseconds to accurately <laughs> place that that uh, signal into the right spot. Uh, otherwise, you, not only will you miss their head, there's a good chance you're going to miss the planet uh, because that Earth moves. <laughs> Everything is moving. So this is some really impressive and long range tech, uh, which you know you don't really think about how long range it is because once you start talking about time, Earth is not in the same place uh, over any span of time. Yeah, I think that that is really a great calculation, Ben. That is what I've come to trust from you. And th that level of accuracy is very impressive. Only a computer can do it. <laughs> and speaking of computers, we have our newly newly christened uh, AI-powered robot, Denon. Uh, Dr. Michael Denon, is there anything that we missed from this show that you wanted to talk about? Well, I think there's a big omission you had, Dan. I know you were real worried about the social media situation. 
Um, but we learn the best defense against AI and data is just to make sure you create a very, very accurate fake social media pro- portfolio. Um, Marcy, um, they totally screw up. They think she's a, a librarian, you know, doing well, working with uh, uh, a reporter, when in fact she you know, is an intellectually challenged woman, you know, barely working in the library, working with a social worker. They pretty much get every aspect of her life wrong. Um, the parents lie about their son's situation in the obituary. And so um, the one guy ends up in a heroin addict who they thought was a one-time heroin user. So I may be redoing everything I have on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram <laughs> um, to protect my identity from future travelers. Uh, so that was that was one. The other is, you know, we talk about the, the water analogy in the brain and consciousness as being the fundamental. It really made me wonder um, how different is a dog brain? We know if you miss a brain, you're, you, you, you disappear. But is this the way to actually finally get your consciousness into a dog? Um, I haven't watched enough seasons, so please do not confirm nor deny this. But I do tell you, um, since we've already spoiled some of season one, um, I really, really thought for a while uh, one of the dogs, uh, you know, the, the that lives on the farm was actually a traveler too. Um, for a moment, I, I held out hopes for that. Turned out not to be, as far as I can tell. Um, you know, but it was a really nice dog, and it, it, I, I just really, you know, thought, oh, we're going somewhere really interesting. So those are my two, Dan. I think it'd be hard to confirm a canine canine consciousness transfer, but I love where you're going, Denon. Uh, I agree with that as well. You know, as far as faking your social media account, there's lots of software where you can actually create an AI generated face, an image of a face that is a person who's never truly existed. And it's impossible to tell that Uh, you can do that. I mean, that's how people catfish all the time. There's people doing this. I don't know if catfishing is the way to protect your identity, but I think you're onto something. We might need to do that. My my addition is the thing we didn't talk about are their little comm links that they just tap, you know, right underneath their ear and they're able to talk to everyone. The thing that always concerned me is, you know, one of my one of my uh, lesser known podcasts is called The Stell Experience. And in that, we talk about a small community who puts in their own telephone company. And back in the day when they had telephone switchers, you know, it was basically two or three lines that connected, you know, eight or nine homes and everything was a party line. And if you the phone rang and you had a nosy neighbor and everyone did in those days, by the way. Way. Uh, you could just pick up the phone and listen to what's going on at someone else's phone call. That's a lot how these comm links felt to me, and I'm not 100% sure that I would want them, especially as we, you know, as as we come to find out, you can kind of hear everything that goes on. I don't know that I want that kind of, uh, you know, my privacy kind of invaded like that. But I did think it was a very interesting technology. So now comes to a very Interesting question from the audience, and one more example of how Ben is very, in a very scary way, predicting the future, because this one is about the rotation of the Earth. How weird is that? This one comes to us from Jamie in Pennsylvania. Hey guys, love the show. Quick story, when I was in seventh grade, a new know-it-all kid started school with us. In geography class, on the first day of school, their emphasis, the teacher held up a globe and started spinning it. He went on for a minute or two about how we were going to learn every country in the world as well as their capital city. When he finished, this new kid raised his hand and said, Excuse me, Mr. Zimbelman, doesn't the earth rotate in the opposite direction? The entire class just stared at him, and I swear I heard a record scratch in the background. All these years later, I do realize that he was actually correct. Now, I know spinning the spit, that spinning the Earth in the opposite direction will not allow you to time travel, a la the Superman movie, but it made me wonder how the Earth would be different if it did spin in the opposite direction. 
What would happen if it spun end over end? I, would it just if if it would just make our toilets spin in the opposite direction? Please disregard this email. Thank you very much. Well, they did give us an out, so I'm hoping it doesn't make our toilets spin in the opposite direction. But I think this is a great question. Uh, let's go physics, Denon. What do you think about this? You know, fundamentally, it, it really doesn't change things much. I mean, we spin and we have gravity. Um, it would adjust where we think the pole is from one perspective. Um, we have the pole of our axis and the magnetic pole. So it would depend a little bit. You know, the magnetic poles generated by the rotation of uh, the liquid core. Um, if it was spinning in a different direction, um, you could imagine that the two are always connected. So the liquid core would spin differently as well. So then the poles would still align. But maybe there's a scenario where, you know, that's not happening. Um, and so they don't align. Um, if it's spinning opposite and and the the spinning of the core doesn't rotate, you know, north and south feel slightly different. Um, but I don't think there's a real drastic change um, just given by the direction of the spin so much. Um, it, it does kind of change a little bit, um, you know, what day and night look like if you think about the axis of how it spins. Um, that could be the biggest effect, right? Because if you spin totally the wrong way, then one side has always got the sun and the other side doesn't. And that starts to get bad, I would think. So, yeah, if, if the Earth was spinning end over end rather than uh, on its current axis with the sun, you would get some interesting day-night cycle effects. The big thing is if it was just spinning the other way, one, obviously the sun would set in the east and rise in the west. That would be different. But the really big one is the ocean currents would change. Your toilets would not spin in the wrong direction. Uh, those That force is usually due to how the toilet is manufactured. Uh, but you're, absolutely the oceans would spin the, the other way. Now, and one really interesting effect of that would be what parts of the earth are habitable and which aren't, assuming the land masses stayed the same. Uh, if you look at, say, the latitude of England versus um, North America, England is much further north than any really habitable part of North America. And that's because of the way the currents, the currents in the Atlantic Ocean go. The currents in the Atlantic Ocean are counterclockwise. And so London and England get uh, water direct from the equator where it's warm. And then that water goes up to the Arctic and down the East Coast. And so it cools the East Coast and warms uh, the European West Coast. If it was the other way around, all of a sudden, northern Canada is really warm and nice, and England is now a frozen wasteland. Uh, so that would be one major effect. And, and similar effects would play out in on our West Coast. Uh, the West Coast of America would all of a sudden be a lot warmer than it currently is, and the east coast of Asia would be a lot colder than it currently is. Well, I definitely don't want the west coast of the United States being any warmer than it is right now. I mean, we're <laughs> currently on fire, so let's <laughs> let's be happy. You know, I think England, the entire country, the, all of the UK is pretty happy that we are spinning the way that we're spinning. But if you want to get in touch with us, we're easy to get a hold of, and your question or comment may end up on a future episode. Well, how do you make that happen? Well, you can find the show on Twitter at FGGGBTPod or on Facebook at FGGGBT. And you can send us a message via email, this new fan-dangled invention called email that we finally got around to doing, and that is questions at 
F triple G B T. You can use it for questions, comments, general correspondence, or even show ideas. And it's possible, as I said, it will be featured on a future episode. But don't limit your questions just to us as a group. You can get in touch with us individually. Denon, where can people find you? Well, I don't know if I'll still be on it after this episode, but they can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Just flip my name at Denon Michael. Uh, if you want to reach me at Facebook, you have to stick in a prof at Prof Denon Michael. Ben, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on all the major social media networks at B Seepser. How do you spell that? B S I E P S E R. And like Denon, for now, you can find me on Twitter at Daniel J. Glenn, on Instagram at The Daniel J. Glenn, and on Facebook at Analytical Mastermind. And when you listen to us on your favorite podcast platform, make sure that you rate and subscribe. And if you're watching us on YouTube, uh, give us a like and leave a comment down below so we can hear your thoughts and uh, hit that subscribe button so you find out when our next episode comes out. And finally, this show contains powerful scientific information that could be misused by, by people hell-bent on world domination, whether they exist now, in the past, or in the future. So be careful with this information. Remember... You want to be a superhero and not a supervillain. So until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, of course, if you're listening to this episode and you've gotten this far, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? We're on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. But if you're not already subscribed to those platforms, I made it easy for you. Go to our website, ftriplegbt.com. You'll find links to those subscribe buttons and also links to our social media, both for the show and for our individual experts, the members of the Brain Trust. That's all right there ftriplegbt.com. And before you leave, don't forget to check out our other episodes. You can find the link at the top of the page for everything we've got, and you'll notice that we've got both a YouTube version and an audio-only version, depending on what you like. We got it for you, and if you do like those videos, you can go ahead and subscribe to those as well. We're on youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And once again, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.